Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. We're talking about walking in love. This is lesson two. If you weren't here last week, just a few things to review. First of all, every believer is to be a student of the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved of God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 makes that very clear. And why? Because under, God knows and understands that our spiritual, emotional, physical Social, relational lives are affected by all that. God wants us to be students of the Word. A disciple is a disciplined student of the Word. And that's why he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of them. Thirdly, we talked about how God's Word is life's instructional book. It teaches us how to navigate through this life. And thank God it points our direction in the right place so that when we leave this realm of life, we could be with him in glory throughout eternity. Actually, we have two choices. We could be with him in eternal glory or we can suffer in the lake of fire forever. Who wants to do that? No one, I wouldn't think. But you see, many don't realize that. They have different thoughts. But God's word straightens out our thinking, lets us know what the right decision is. Next, we're talking about the word was made flesh. For God to communicate his word to us, he robed it in flesh. Christ, we're celebrating pretty soon the incarnation, the birth of our Lord. He took his word and clothed it in flesh and came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us to communicate to each and every one of us the mind of God, the purpose of God, the will of God, the plan of God. That's what redemption is all about. And then we talked about how faith working by love. Look, let's pull up that verse, Galatians 5, verse 6. If you are a child of God, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile and you came to Christ, what matters more than anything else is faith working by love. For in Jesus Christ, are you in Jesus Christ? Then neither circumcision, which means being a Jew, or availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, which means being a Gentile, doesn't mean anything. But faith which works by love, or that is energized by love, or love is the driving force behind uh, the things that we do. And the word love there is agape love, which is the highest form of love. It's unconditional love based on principle and decision, not feeling and emotion. And so God wants this agape love to be the driving force behind all the activity of our lives. All that we do in this life is to be driven by love. So, to continue our study, look in the book of Hebrews, and here chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 14 through 17, first from the King James and, and then from the Message Bible. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like as Esau, 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What a statement. But look at the message translation of that same text. Work at getting along with each other and with God. Otherwise, you'll never get so much as a glimpse of God. Make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. Watch out for the Esau syndrome. And this is why I want to bring this out. I like the way this, this reads. Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing. But by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. Wow. You might want to say ouch, right? Wow. Well, what was the Esau syndrome? Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short term. Notice, a short term appetite. And you know, we all have short term appetites, don't we? Well, whatever it is that we feel as though that is so important in the short term, it can't compare what we're for forfeiting by doing so in the long term. This life is temporal. This life is short. We're eternal spirit beings that will never cease to exist. Let's not forfeit the great things of God for the short-term benefit that we might experience here on earth, whatever satisfaction it might be. For an example, he's talking here about the root of bitterness springing up and defiling people. Well, if you recall the individual that I talk about often, and I, I do it from time to time because it just really bears repetition, especially right here. This was a bitter woman. And when I first came, I was trying to get her healed. Couldn't get her healed after weeks of sharing with her from God's word. And finally, at one point, the Spirit of God gave me a word of knowledge. And I said, Sister, does bitterness mean anything to you? And she said, oh, yeah, I'm bitter. And at least she admitted the fact that she was a bitter person. Well, I said, don't you know that being bitter means you won't receive your healing from the Lord? She said, no, I never heard that. Didn't know that. I found that odd, but she didn't. I said, you're not going to get healed until you get rid of the bitterness, the animosity, the unforgiveness, holding a grudge or whatever it might be. She said, oh. So she went and took care of that. I didn't know that she did take care of that, but came to our next Sunday night service and we were praying for the sick. And she came up to the altar and I said to her, well, did you deal with that situation? And she said, yeah. You mean the bitterness? I said, yes. And she said, yeah, I did. Got it right. Just pray for me and I'll be healed. And you know what? She got a creative miracle that day. Even went back to the doctors who said, did you go somewhere in Pittsburgh? Did they come up with some kind of procedure? And she said, no, I went to a church and my pastor laid hands on me and I got healed. My point is, the short term holding of bitterness, unforgiveness, animosity, and all that, whatever satisfaction a person gets out of that, can compare to what they're forfeiting. She was forfeiting a creative miracle, the power of God coming into her life to bring wholeness and deliverance into her life. But she was forfeiting that. Why? For the short term satisfaction of um, being bitter towards somebody. So, walking in love means get rid of it. Get rid of it. 
It's not worth it. It doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts you. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, talking about walking in love. Therefore, as, therefore, be imitators. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. How am I going to imitate him? And walk in love. Agape, divine love. As the Messiah also, now notice this, as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So he's saying walk in love as Christ loved us. So if we want our lives to send a sweet smelling fragrance up to God, then we need to learn to walk in love. I don't want God to look at me and say, you need a shower. You'll get that in a moment. I want my life to be a fragrant, sweet smelling, savor in the nostrils of God. And the only way that's guaranteed is by walking in love, a course of action that we follow. But notice this, even as Christ says, I loved you. Now look at John th chapter 13, because there's something I want to point out here that's very important to all of us. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now notice this, as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. Well, wait a minute, Lord. Do you remember the time when the scribe came to Jesus and said to him, what are the, what, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said to the scribe, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus went on to say, and the second commandment is namely this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe said to him, you have well answered my question. Because that's right, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor is yourself, is greater than all the whole burnt offerings in the world. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Notice those two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. But now notice this. Love your neighbor as how? Yourself. Okay. Well, in this new commandment, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Notice he doesn't say love God. That's already understood. What's the new commandment? That you love your neighbor as I have loved you. See, he changes it from as you love yourself. That's the new commandment, that you love your neighbor as I have loved you. Now we have another focal point, another model to follow. Well, then how did he love me? I need to discover how he loved me, how he loved you, how he loved the world. Why? So I can do exactly what he said, love others as he loved me. Look at John 15, 13. Greater man, love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, he's beginning to model this for us. He says, this is the love I'm talking about. A man is to lay down his life for his friends. That's what he modeled for us. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the whole world. For God so loved the world, we know that he gave his son. But that's how he's going to model this kind of agape love. And that's... The standard he sets for all of us. That's the new commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Not as you love even yourself now. He's changed it. He's actually raised the bar on love. So, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul lays down the dimensions. I, could call, I call them sometimes endless dimensions of God's love. Endless boundaries of God's love. If we're to love as he loved us, then we have to have an understanding of his love. So let's look at, look at these verses here, Ephesians chapter 3, as we enter into this season called Christmas or the Incarnation. He's praying for the church at Ephesus, and he prays that God would grant them 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in their inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that they being rooted and grounded in what? What's the root system to be grounded in? Agape love, divine love. May be able to comprehend, understand fully or completely what? With all saints, what is that? Now notice these dimensions. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. And to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to that power that works in us. So and here he lays down these four dimensions of God's love. The breadth of God's love, the length of God's love, the depth of God's love, and the height of God's love. Well, how do we define them? Well, the definition is found in John 3.16. These are parallel verses in the Bible. Notice, for God so loved the world, stop right there. God so loved the world is a revelation of the breadth of God's love. The breadth of God's love encompasses the entire world. Anyone that you look at as you walk through life, that you see as you walk through life, is loved by God is valuable to God, is precious in the sight of God, is like the pearl of great price in the sight of God. But you might see someone that maybe doesn't look like you think they should look, or they, they, they don't dress as well, maybe they're not as wealthy, maybe uh, whatever their demeanor might be, it could be offensive to you and all that. You see, God so loved the world. For me to imitate love the way God loved humanity, it doesn't matter what they look like, it doesn't matter what race, ethnicity, Red, yellow, black, or white, it doesn't matter. They're all precious in his sight, right? It doesn't matter where they come from, their background. It doesn't matter the social status or anything of that nature whatsoever. It doesn't matter how tall they are, how short they are. None of that matters whatsoever. No, what, what matters? They're a human being made in the image of God. And God sacrificed his son for each and every person on the planet, no matter how obnoxious they may be to you. It doesn't matter. All the more reason for you and I to love them into the kingdom and let them know that God loves them and sacrifice our lives for them. So what we should actually do is just basically do our own investigation of ourselves, do an inventory of ourselves. Am I only loving those that love me? Jesus said anybody could do that. But he said, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those that despitefully use and abuse you and speak well of those that speak evil of you that you may be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. So the breath of God's love is all-encompassing. It includes every person on the planet, no matter what they look like or their social status or so on. Number two, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now we see a revelation of the incarnation. The length of God's love is only seen in the incarnation. The incarnation is the hypostatic union of deity with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the two names, Jesus Christ, Jesus, humanity, Christ, deity, hypostatic union, the God-man becoming one, walking on this earth, on this planet, right? So the incarnation is a revelation of the length of God's love. What length would you go to to show someone that you love them? To what length would you go? Ask yourself that question. Do I have a limit? Well, let me show you his limit. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. New Living Translation says, Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die 
And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. To what length would he go? He's sitting on the throne. He's the second person of deity. He spoke the world into being. He's the author of life. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He is there clothed in majesty and honor, the glory. Think about it. And what does he do? He steps out of that world and enters into this world in which we live. He humbled himself to become a man, entering the womb of a young virgin girl to robe himself in flesh. Why? To communicate to you and to me that God loves us. He has a plan for us. To what length would I go to show someone love? To what length would you go to show someone love? So when we start talking about walking in love, we're talking about loving people as Christ loved us. That's how he loved us. How much am I willing to lay down my life for someone else? Is the question. Number three. The crucifixion is a revelation of the depth of God's love. He so loved the world... He gave his son the incarnation. Whoever believes in him would not what? Perish. It took the, in, the incarnation to give birth to the son who would go to a cross where he would suffer and die by crucifixion. So that we wouldn't perish. He bore the wrath of God upon himself. So look in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 31. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell Neither his flesh did see corruption. And there are so many that just want to, for whatever reason, just dismiss these scriptures. And I don't know why. When I grew up, that's exactly what I said every time I went to church. That he descended into hell and on the third day he was raised from the dead. So, what depth would he go to? He suffered the wrath of God. The torments that are unimaginable. We can't even comprehend the depth of his suffering. In that rock, at that rock in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know why he was sweating as if it were drops of blood? You know why? Because he knew his fate. It wasn't a, just a physical aspect of it. You know how many people died by crucifixion that time? The two thieves on the cross were, at first of all, mocking, not even concerned about that they were going to die that way. Right? Is that not true? Okay. How many others that have died martyrs' deaths just said gladly? Peter said, don't crucify me like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. Isaiah said, cut me in half. It doesn't matter what you do to me. But yet Jesus was in the garden just crying away. No. He knew what he would suffer. He knew the wrath would be upon him. He knew the torment of it all. Father, if there's a way that I could bypass this, let's do it. But not my will be done, but your will be done. I know this has to happen. So what's the depth of his love? He suffered in hell for you and for me. So you and I wouldn't have to go there. His soul was not left in hell. Yeah, thank him. Praise God. And neither did his flesh see corruption. 
Wow, thank you, Jesus. We could never thank him enough for that. And then the height of God's love is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. These verses should just make us shout beyond measure. But God who is rich in mercy for his what? Great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Not when we were responding to him. Not when we were loving him, but dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what that's talking about? The resurrection. So the world represents or reveals the breadth of God's love. The incarnation, the length of God's love. The crucifixion, the depth of God's love. And now the resurrection is a revelation to us of the height of God's love. See, the height of God's love is this. Imagine this. We know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know a coronation service took place when he went back up there and he was given back his glory, right? Well, how about this? He loves us so much, he says... I want to make you my heir, an heir of God and a joint heir with me. I'm going to raise you up to sit together with me in high heavenly places. And that's where you're at. You think you're seated right here? That's only your flesh that's seated right here at 6241 Tuscarora Road. But you've got an address in heaven. You have an address in heaven right now. You are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he'll show you the exceeding greatness of his love and kindness toward us. Hallelujah. That should stagger us. Glory to God. So what's the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love? There it is right there. Now let's, let's match that. Can we do that? No, it's beyond our scope of ability. But you know what we can do? Look at how he loved us and say, I'm going to walk in that same kind of love towards somebody else. I'm going to do what you said, Lord, even my enemy. I'll do good to those who hate me. Pray for those that despitefully use and abuse me. Speak well of those that speak ill of me so I could be like my father in heaven. He said, what is it that you love your friends and people that love you back? Love your enemy if you want to be godlike. So if we want to love as he loved us, we need to take it to that level. Can you see that? How much more than to love each other the same way he loved us? Now, look at 1 John chapter 3. This is from the NIV. We know that we have passed from death to life because we hold animosity in our hearts towards so many people. No, I think it's because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Boy, that should take some meditation, shouldn't it? Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought, the word ought in the Greek means we owe it to him, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be that, be, be that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. What's he saying? He laid in his life for us. John three sixteen. 
1 John 3, 16 says, We owe it to him to lay down our lives for one another. What a tall mandate and what a tall order to do so. Can you imagine that? But how do we do that? Not with just words, but in actions and in truth. So let's give a biblical illustration about what it means to love this way. Look at second, Ezekiel, first of all, chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. And this is uh, from the NIV. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin. And I will hold you accountable for their blood. What? Okay. But if you do warn them or warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin. But you will have saved yourself. Again, notice this separation between the wicked and the righteous. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that the person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. It gets quiet when you read a scripture like that. And rightfully so. In other words, we're to warn the righteous and we're to warn the wicked. And you might say, well, they won't listen. Well, he just said that some will listen, some won't listen. But it's still up to us to warn them and let them know that this is right and this is wrong. We live in a culture right now that there is no right and wrong. They call good evil and evil good. And I think it's caused many, even from the pulpit, to back off and just uh, be apprehensive even to say what the truth is. But if we're going to love people with action and truth, let's, let's do it this way. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is from the Holman Christian Standard uh, Version of the Bible. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing. And as though I were present, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. At first, you look at that, you think about the language as being unloving or unkind. Harsh. Remove him. Don't associate with him. Excommunicate him. And so on and so forth. It seems like Paul, turn him over to Satan. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, you see, the the thing is, we're talking about walking in love, which is love being the driving force behind what we do. Our actions and also it's truth. It's based on truth. This was an act of love. First of all, for the man. Secondly, for the congregation. For the man, number one, Doing such a thing would then have him be in a position where he could repent for what he was doing and get right with God. So that is for him. That was loving him because Paul wouldn't want him to spend eternity in the lake of fire. 
Would you say that's an act of love? To let that person know, look, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's just wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Now, if he listens, fine. If he doesn't listen, it's still up to him to make a decision as to what he thinks. But our responsibility is to love people with truth and by our actions. So what is truth? The truth is what you're doing is wrong. What action should, should you be taking? Repent. Well, the man was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Secondly, it was an act of love because the whole congregation could have been contaminated by allowing that kind of influence into the congregation. It could influence all the different people that are there in the congregation. So number one, the love is for him, the man. Number two, loving for the congregation so that people would not be, once again, exposed to that and then also overtaken by that. Now, it sounds harsh, but look at chapter 2. And we're going to read these scriptures first. Look at verses two through, uh, 5 through 11, first of all, in chapter 2. And these are both from the New Living Translation. I am not over, this is chapter, this is the second book. The first letter talked about this man. The second letter addresses this. I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt, uh, trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. Speaking of the same man that was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, why? So his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord. The man was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Guess what? Cohabiting with his stepmother no longer is an issue when you find yourself dying. The, the, appetite, the, the appetite that satisfies for the moment is gone. Because he's going to die now. So what does he do? He repents. And even though he repented, they didn't want to bring him back into the congregation. And Paul says, you're wrong. He's repented. Reaffirm your love for him. Comfort him. Bring him in. Don't discourage him to push him so far away from God. Look at chapter 7. Look what it says here. Very important truth. We're talking about loving someone in truth. Not feelings, not emotions, but truth. I'm not sorry that I sent you that severe letter. I sent that severe letter to you. Notice the first statement, I'm not sorry. There is human sorrow there. Though I was sorry at first, he's talking about human sorrow. For I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow... For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in what? Salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, notice the third. There's human sorrow. Notice there's godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Notice that. It results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. So stop right there just for a moment, and we'll read that in, in, in a moment. So we have three types of sorrow. Human sorrow, godly sorrow, and worldly sorrow. You know what worldly sorrow is? I'm sorry I got caught. I'm not really sorry. I'm sorry for the consequences. So in other words, that's just worldly sorrow. 
Everybody's that way. But human sorrow, Paul says, I'm sorry I have to do this. I'm sorry I've got to write this letter telling you all this stuff. It hurts me to have to do it, but I have to do it. That's human sorrow. But he came across in such a way to let them know that his interest was in their eternal well-being individually for that man and also for the congregation, for the church. And so therefore, it was a godly way of disciplining. Worldly sorrow means uh, he's sorry because he got caught and the consequences are too severe. It's that sort of thing. So now, look at what it produced in the people. Verse 11. Just see what this godly sorrow produced. What did it produce? In you. Earnestness. Concern to clear yourselves. Such indignation. Such alarm. Such longing to see me. Such, such zeal. And such readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. So these are the results of true godly sorrow. And that was the whole objective. Walking in love sometimes is not easy as we think. Love rejoices at when righteousness and truth prevail. But it does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness. That's the full spectrum, the full scope of love. Which we'll get to that at a later point. But notice how he addressed this concern and this issue within the body that was there at Corinth. He loved them in truth. And even though feelings and emotions might spoke to him differently, I feel sorry I've got to say this to you. But he said it's truth. And so it worked out as such so that the man repented. He was restored. He was reconciled. He got back into the people, the, the, the congregation, and they loved on him. And he wasn't discouraged. And so he continued his walk with the Lord. Now, look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And um, this, this point, I just want to let you know something. Ezekiel 3 talks about if I don't warn you, and if, if I don't warn people from behind this pulpit what's right and what's wrong, then I'm not loving in truth. But it's time we speak the truth in love and grow up into Christ in all things. And stop letting our feelings and emotions and our culture dictate to what's right and what's wrong. You know, when I speak out and just say, for example, our government doesn't have a right to change God's institution of marriage. You realize that? Our government has no right to redefine marriage. Now, they could do what they want to do, but that doesn't mean we have to believe that. You go back to the very beginning, and the Bible says that God made man, male and female, made he him, made he them, right? And when he instituted the uh, relation of marriage, what did he say? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they too shall be what? One flesh. And what was the, the, the command then? To go and replenish the earth? Okay. The only way that that can happen is with a man and a woman. Okay, so that's the truth. But remember this, we speak the truth in love. Do you know why there's other views and other positions? Because we live in a fallen world. The fallen world is not God's way. The fallen world is the way of sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And when they did open up the door to all kinds of destruction in all realms of life, spirit, soul, and body, in all realms of all dimensions of man's being. So the things we encounter today are not the will of God, even though they may happen. That child having spina bifida was not the will of God. It was a result of a fallen state that we live in. And because of the fall of this fall of man, the world that we live in is under the curse. But thank God Jesus redeemed us from the curse. But it's not an automatic thing. It doesn't mean that every child is going to be born perfect. We have to believe and use our faith and so on and so forth. 
Okay, but that doesn't make it right just because it happens. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, let's look at this from that light. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, he him. Male and female created he them. Right? So what two genders are there? The masculine and the feminine. But we know in our society, we've added common and neuter. Common. I'm either or. Neuter. I'm neither. Now, I don't say that as a critical response or remark, but it's time someone speak the truth. Because even though there may be some individuals that are born certain ways, for example, one will, I would just, just do some research, you'll find it out. When it comes to those that were supposedly have the, both, gen, both genitals, okay? All right. The percentage is 0. 0.0005. That is not the majority. What that tells me is something is wrong. And rather than trying to come up with just another identity with it, we need to help people to reach out in love and let them know you may have been born that way, but that's not God's way. God's way in the beginning would have been not one person would be born with a defect in any way, shape, form, or fashion if Adam and Eve didn't sin. So we're talking about living in a fallen world that we have to address these things. And rather than uh, patronize people, what we need to do is let, let them know the truth so God can help them rise up and overcome them. And it's time that we as the church stand up and stand tall and declare the truth and let people know. Why? Because we don't want them to spend eternity not knowing God and blaming God for something that he did not do. So God made us masculine and feminine. And if there's a, an exception to the rule, then we need to help people to overcome whatever they need to overcome. I've got a son right here that was born with a deletion of his 22nd chromosome. That wasn't the will of God. And the doctor said he cannot live. And if I would have just gone by what the doctor said that he cannot live, he wouldn't be sitting right there today. There is no way he can live. Impossible. So what I'm saying to you is truth is not based on our feelings, our emotions, or the conditions that take place in a fallen world. Truth is found in one place. I am the way I am the truth and I am the life and nobody comes to the Father except by me. So when we talk about studying God's word to achieve God's best in our lives, every single one of us should be an astute student of the word of God so that we know what that truth is so that we can help other people. Plus, we speak the truth in love so that we can grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ. Now, is it true they're born that way? Absolutely. Is it true they're born with this tendency? Absolutely. But that does not mean that's their identity. It means that we live in a fallen world. And there are many birth defects. There are many different forms of, of people being born certain ways. But that is not the rule. That's the exception because of the fall of man. So it's time we take this truth and herald it and proclaim it and let people know, praise God, there is a way to victory found in the word of God. And he sits there today 
because we took the word of God, proclaimed it over his life, and it reached the very throne of God, and Jesus sat down with him and told him, Andrew, I'm going to give you a whole heart and make you big, but go back and tell people about me. And I know because our daily confession has always been in my pathways life and there is no death. In my pathways life and there is no death. And I'm telling you right now, I've got two older boys because in my pathways life and there is no death. One sitting right over there who was born when we were told you cannot have any more children because we exalted the word of God above the word of man and said we believe God rather than man. You just go ahead and judge on that. And so I thank God that they're alive because of it. And then I've got him that's alive because of it. And I've got a daughter who would be dead right now without a doubt. Because I know my oldest child, Lisa, my oldest daughter would be dead if it were not for in my pathways life. And there is no death. Because when the truck was about to run her over and I somehow got her arm and pulled it back without looking. Uh, the Holy Ghost said to me, in your pathways life and there is no death. So I know she would have died on that day. So when these people tell me, oh, you're one of those confession people. Yes, I am. I am. I confess the word of God over my family, over my life, over my health, over all of you. Jesus is the high priest of our confession. With your confession of your mouth is how you get saved. I don't know how we can't see this. Jesus said, speak to your mountain. Speak to that tree. Confess it. Declare it. How do we grow in Christ? By acknowledging or confessing every good thing that's in you in Christ Jesus. Every day, I endure long. I'm patient. I'm kind. I'm never envious. I never bowl over jealousy. I'm not boastful of vainglorious. I don't display myself haughtily. I'm not conceited, arrogant, inflated with pride. I'm not rude or unmanly. I don't act to becomingly. God's love me doesn't allow me to insist on my own rights or ways. I'm not self-seeking, touchy, fretful, resentful. I take no account of the evil done to me. I pay no attention to a suffered wrong. I rejoice in righteousness and truth prevail. I, right? I say that every day of my life. You know why? I need it. <laughs> I need it. Don't you? Love rejoices when right and truth. doesn't rejoice in injustice or unrighteousness, but it rejoices when right and truth prevail. It bears up under anything and everything. Its hopes are, it believes the best about every person. Its hopes are fadeless under every circumstance of life. It endures everything without weakening. It never fails, fade out, becomes obsolete, never comes to an end. Why? It's the love of God. It's the love of God. I, I, I don't just do that just to do that. It's like lifting weights. You're trying to build up a muscle. Right? And that's why confession really is, is a spiritual exercise, which is why we go, thank you, Father, for your holy written word. It's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Okay, let's close this in. Anybody want to guess what chapter that is in point three? Anybody know what chapter that is in the book of Proverbs? Six is right. It was left out, but it's six, chapter six. Let's read these verses. Why? They should really speak to our hearts. These six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination he detests. Do you think that might be something we should learn? <laughs> Anybody think we should learn this? Mm -hmm. I know you're going to think the next thing is smoking, drinking, swearing. Uh, no, those aren't in there. <laughs> Did you hear that? They're not in there. 
Okay. A proud look. Looking down on other people as if you're better than somebody else. That's not loving people the breath of the world. No one's better than anybody. I said no one is better than anyone else. Jesus said, I washed your feet. Now you wash the feet of others. No one's better. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter how much money you have, your race, your gender. It doesn't matter. No one is better than anyone else. And let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be called equal with God, but thought himself no reputation whatsoever. He ended himself to become a servant like we are, to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. If we think that way, then guess what? Love says, I'm not better than you. And you're not better than I am. We're all equal. Okay? Some will just take their faith to a different level, their love to a different level, but that's, up, that's working out your salvation. But God hates when someone has a proud look and they look down upon somebody else as if they're better. He hates a lying tongue. A lying tongue. He hates that. Look at this one. Hands that shed innocent blood. Murderers. He cannot tolerate that. He despises that. It's abomination to him. And what about this one? A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Mm, I'm going to get my revenge. I've got it all played out, got it all planned out. I run it across my head. It's all in there. I am going to really score big on this one. Uh, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Where can I find mischief? I got a mischief finder. They sell them at Walmart. Go pick one up. Gravitate toward that. Mm. A false witness that speaks lies. And then the final one, if he's talking about the seventh one that's really an abomination, he that sows discord among brethren. He that sows discord among brethren. Seven things God detests. He hates. But you know what? Isn't it something that over the years in Christianity, you're wearing makeup? Oh, shame on you wearing makeup. That skirt's a little bit too short. And do you have a picture in your house? Oh my goodness. Nasty, nasty. You let your daughter be a cheerleader? Mmm. Abomination. You have a television in your house. Isn't it something how we look at that? But it's okay to lie. It's okay to go on and look down on somebody and be full of pride and arrogance and all that. Well, that's nothing. I'm not smoking. I'm not drinking. I'm not swearing. Walking in love rejoices when right and truth prevail. It does not rejoice in injustice or unrighteousness. Can you see that? So we're talking about walking in a dimension of love that you and I have no clue about. It's not feeling. It's not emotion. Now why am I saying this? Because if I don't tell us, I don't want all that blood on my feet, Amen. on my shoes. It's time for the church to rise up, take the rightful place, 
and in love. Listen, this is love. Love said, turn him over to Satan to destroy his flesh. I'd rather his flesh be destroyed and he be eternally in heaven rather than be in the lake of fire forever. Did, did you hear that? That's what he was saying. So whatever your lifestyle may be, I want you to know something. Do it the, God's way. And look, at when we talk about lifestyle and he's talking about sexual immorality, we're talking about everything connected to it. Heterosexual, homosexual, the list goes on and on. God would rather see someone die and go to heaven than continue with a lifestyle that will send them to hell. That's love. Three of you gave me an amen. That's love. Don't hide the truth because you want to make someone feel good. Help someone. We love people. We're supposed to not love the sin, but we love the people. God so loved the world and those that were born in different ways that are not the standard way that God has revealed to us in Scripture, we're supposed to help them and reach out to them in love and bring them to a right relationship with God. Can you say amen to that? Let's all stand.